All right. Well, happy Father's Day. Hope you enjoyed that. Hey, uh, if I can real quick, if you're a dad here, can you just stand up uh, real quick for us? Go ahead. No, sh don't, don't be afraid. Come on, all of you. Uh, let's give them a hand. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Can have a seat. I just want to say this. Listen, in a world where it's kind of funny to make fun of dads, you know, the media kind of presents dads as don't know what they're doing, trying to figure things out. Um, we got a lot of great dads here at New City Church, and so I just want to say thank you for what you do. Thanks for loving your kids well and trying to follow Jesus. Um, it's an honor to do life with you. And if today is a difficult day for you for any reason, uh, maybe you've lost a father, again, maybe you've had a difficult relationship with a father or a child or anything like that, I just want to say thanks for being here and praying that you'd be encouraged this morning. And uh, speaking of fathers, I know when it comes to driving, there are different t groups of people. There are some groups of people that have gotten so many tickets and various things that you should be in jail. Uh, there are some of you that do things every once in a while, and you know, you've got a couple things on your record, it's not too bad. And then there are others of us, of me included, who have impeccable driving records. No speeding tickets, no car accidents. Now, I know what you're thinking, Dylan, you probably drive like a grandma. Now, no shot to grandmothers, they're awesome. I'm just the messenger. This is what people say to me when they hear that. I'll say that's not true. In fact, if you ask Christina, she says I drive like a NASCAR driver sometimes. I know how to get places quickly but I know how to do it efficiently. And so you might be wondering, well, Dylan, what is the secret, right? How do you have no speeding tickets and 16 years of driving, no accidents that are your fault? How do you do it, right? And I could say, well, I know you guys are supposed to obey the speed limit and pay attention and turn your music down. That sounds good. But how do you practically do it? Well, the way I practically do it uh, is what my parents taught me when I first got my car. Uh, how it worked for us was I paid for the car, paid for the gas, but my parents paid for our insurance. And so I have an email from my father when I was 17 years old to just show you how I've been able to drive so well. I know this might be hard for some of you to read, so I'm going to read it for you. Here's what it says. It says, Dylan, your six-month car insurance premium was $750. This is about $125 a month or $4 a day. The good news is that you have a pristine driving record. No accidents, no tickets, no running red lights, no speeding, super keep it up, drive paranoid, turn off the music in busy or unfamiliar locations. And then he says this, if you get any driving tickets or accidents, the insurance will go up for two, to $2,000 for six months and you will have to pay the difference or you can take a bike. <laughs> good driving, dad. Now. Taking a bike then sounds bad. Right now, it didn't sound too bad with gas prices how they are. And I don't know how it was like for your household, but there were no empty threats for my parents. If they said there was going to be a consequence, there was going to be a consequence. And so all my life, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to lose my license. I don't want to lose my license. I can't afford to drive if they don't help me, right? And so since then, even today, when I pay for all these things myself, I have great car insurance, by the way. That's awesome. Um, the voice in my head, Right? If you get a ticket, it's not going to go well for you. And so that is how, all these years later, I've still been able to do that. And today I say that because as we continue the Gospel of Mark, I want to lay before you this question that we're going to look at this morning. And that is, how can I live out God's will in my life? And that is how. So the question for us this morning is not just what is God's will for my life. We're going to talk about that in a second as Jesus shares that with us. But the other question is, how do you actually do it? Because it's one thing to know something. It's another way to make it practical for you to actually do it. It's one thing to know you should not get speeding tickets or not get an accident. But it's another thing to actually know how to 
do it. So how can I live out God's will for my life? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 12. If not, there's a black one around you, or you can scan one of those QR codes on your phone. It'll take you to today's scripture as well. We'll be in Mark chapter 12. Uh, we are in, again, what's called Passion Week. Jesus is in the final week of his life leading up to his crucifixion. And so these last couple of weeks, he's been in the temple, out of the temple. And for the last couple of weeks, he's been challenged by various religious leaders about who he is, what authority he has to do the things that he is doing. And today he is going to get his third and final challenge of the week. Uh, this is likely happening on what would be, what would be a Tuesday, uh, and he's going to be crucified on Friday morning. And so again, this is a, a number of people have been coming. He's been answering their questions. And now we get a third question, and here's what it says. Mark chapter 12, verse 28, it says this. One of the scribes approached, which is just, you know, a religious leader, essentially. And when he heard them debating, so he's seeing Jesus answering all these other people who are bringing charges against him, and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, he asked him, so the scribe asked Jesus, which command is the most important of all? Which command is the most important of all? Now, what makes this a little bit different is that this time, Jesus is not being confronted by a group of people. He's being confronted by an individual person. And as we're going to read, uh, this person actually seems to be pretty sincere about what he's asking Jesus here. So he's not trying to trap him. He's not trying to make him say anything crazy or try to get it away from him. He has a sincere question for Jesus. And that is, what is the most important law out of all of them? Now, that being said, uh, I want to explain something here for us to understand what's going on. Give me two minutes, put your Bible nerd hats on for me, because I think this will help us appreciate what's happening. See, what would often happen with the scribes and the religious leaders is that they would spend time debating the law, the scriptures, interpretations, how to live them out. And so what they would do is after the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament was written, uh, there, you, you had developed what was called the rabbinic tradition, where these leaders would kind of figure out how to apply pretty much the law in their practical everyday life. And so uh, once they calculated all the laws in the Torah, they found that there was about 613 of them. And so they listed 248 of them as positive commands. In other words, here's what you should do. And then another 365 of them were prohibitions. In other words, here's what you should not do, or here's what you should refrain from. And some were considered lighter or smaller, and some were considered weightier or greater. In other words, they all mattered, uh, but this here, the scribe wants to know what Jesus thinks is the weightiest. Or in other words, what is the most fundamental or central? Like if, if you have all these laws to follow, which is, which, are the, which is the one to you is the most important that if you do this, you'll likely have a good chance of doing the rest of them. Or like for me, for example, it's probably different in your field or vocation or career, but me as a pastor, I'll talk to a lot of church planters, and one of the questions that's always asked is if you, do, if you were to do this all over again, if you're going to plant a church all over again, what is one thing you would make sure you did differently the, the next time? Like what is the one thing that you, one biggest piece of advice? And that's essentially what this religious scribe is asking Jesus. Now here's what I want to do for us. I want us to have a rhetorical thought experiment here and have you think, what do you think the answer to this question is, right? What do you think is the most important laws out of all of them? Now, as I say that, some of you might know the correct answer. Perhaps you've read this passage before or are familiar with it. And so what I want to invite you to do is to forget what you know the answer to be. Forget what you know what Jesus is going to say and really answer it sincerely. Or maybe answer this question, what is the one thing that you would say needs to happen 
to make sure you are on good terms with God, right? So there might be a lot of things that are important, but what is the one thing that you say, I mean, I got to make sure I'm doing this, and as long as I'm doing this, then I'm on good terms with God. And it's different for different people. I remember having a conversation with a guy who grew up in the church and was a follower of Jesus, but had since kind of stopped doing that whole thing and was kind of living his own way, wasn't involved with church, didn't have a community. I remember him telling me, but, here's, but, but I, every night before I go to bed, I pray. I, I pray once a day, right? And so for him, he was like, as long as I at least pray once a day, then I'm good. Or you might think, I've got to make it a church at least once a month. Or if I read my Bible at least once a week, as long as I do that, even if I'm not doing these other things, then I'm good. Or as I've mentioned before, it's been a funny observance for me in the South that everybody seems to have somebody in their extended family that's a minister of some sort. It's like my aunt's cousin, sister's brother's daughter is on staff at a church somewhere. And so as long as someone in my bloodline is in vocational ministry, I'm covered. Like I'm just, I'm good, right? And so we think like of all the things, as long as this happens, then I am okay. Or the famous Rabbi Hillel, about 20 years before Jesus, was a really well-known rabbi and religious teacher. Uh, he explained the law in, in, a, in essentially a negative sense. In other words, he said it this way, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the entire Torah, the first five books of the, uh, the Old Testament where the law is written. And he says everything else is interpretation, Right? And this sounds really nice, particularly in our 21st century moment, right? Don't hurt me, and I won't hurt you, right? Don't wrong me, and I won't wrong you. So the question Jesus has is, what, was, what would he say? According to Jesus, what is the most important command? And so here's what he says, verse 29. Jesus responds by saying this. Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel. Love, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so Jesus hears, answers a really well-known answer, essentially, with what it was called the Shema. Now, the Shema is, was originally recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 of the Torah. And this was essentially a Jewish prayer that was ideally prayed every morning, and for many people, prayed multiple times throughout the day. And so this is a not surprising answer. This is a good answer. This is what you would expect. It's essentially, what Jesus is saying is that you should love the Lord with everything that you have. Not just some sometimes or not just some days, but every single day. And here's the thing, whether or not we always abide by this, whether or not we always live this out intellectually, you and I can agree with this answer, right? If God exists, if he is there, if he loves us, if he cares for us, if his laws are good for us, then we should love him with all of our being. This sounds really good. But then Jesus gives him another answer. He continues by saying this in verse 31. He adds on, he says, the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. And so Jesus says the familiar love God, but then he also adds what we now refer to as the golden rule, 
right? And the golden rule is not simply don't do to others what you don't want them do, to do to you, but instead it is proactively doing for others what you would wish that they would do for you. And that's a big difference between the golden rule and the, well, I'll call it the silver rule, right? The Hillel version of not doing to someone what you don't want to do them, for them to do for you, right? So according to the, the silver rule, uh, right, I don't want people to steal my stuff, so I'm going to try not to steal other people's stuff. Or I don't want people to gossip about me, so I'm going to try not to gossip about others. It's very much, I don't do this to me and I won't do this to you. But this is not what Jesus is saying. Right? When Jesus says to treat others, to love others, or love our neighbor as ourselves, this is a proactive type of love. Instead of, I, don't want to, I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me, the question is, what would I wish people would do for me? And whatever I wish people would do for me, I should do for others. And so I don't know about you, but I would want people to be generous to me. I want people to be willing to forgive me. I want people to honor and respect me. And so according to Jesus, this is what, how we should live towards others. This is what we should initiate towards others, that whether or not they have done this to us, to really love people well is to do, the, do this to them because this is what we would want. And what this does, what Jesus does here, is he moves from making loving God some mythical or intellectual or theoretical thing to something that's actually practical, right? Because if I were to ask you, what does it mean to love God with all your mind? That's a really hard answer, right? Like, I don't know, think about him a lot. You know, that's what I should do instead of when I'm on the, you know, when I'm spending time on the phone, maybe I should think about God or pray to him. Like, it's hard to answer if I were to ask you, what does it mean to love God with all your mind? But if I were to say, what does it mean to love someone how I want to be loved? Well, now you've got application, right? Now you've got something practical that you can actually do. You see, because for Jesus, one cannot love God in isolation from other relationships in your life. And so this is why Jesus combines the love of God with the love of others. Or put another way, we love God by loving others. We love God by loving others. It's not by how often we go to church. Uh, it's not by how often we pray. Uh, we love God not by not hurting other people or uh, uh, all these other things. All, none of those things are bad. All those things are good. The real thing is if you want to know what, how well you are loving God or how well you are following others or following Jesus, rather, the question that you and I should answer is how do we love, not just treat, you know, reactively, but how do we proactively love others, right? That is how we actually live out God's will for our life, and that's what God's will for our life is. Now, this kind of makes me think of, again, try to make this more practical. Uh, it makes me think of, like, going to the dentist. Like, how does this make you go to the dentist? Well, so again, like my driving example, right? Many of us know um, intellectually how to go to the dentist and have them say, you, you did a good job, right? I don't know if this was like this for you, but for most of my life, when I went to the dentist, they would say things like, you got to floss more, you know, it's okay, but you got to do a little bit better. Um, and so I don't know what it, what it was exactly, but a couple of years ago, I had it in my mind that I'm going to start flossing every single day. And I'm one of those people that if I have something in my mind, I'm just going to do it. And so I started to put a, uh, uh, started to do this habit tracker thing. And every day after dinner, I would go into the bathroom and then I would floss. You know, I'd floss. And what did you guys think I was talking about? No, I'd actually floss. I'd actually floss my teeth. And I was doing this for a couple months. And the first time I go to the dentist after I start flossing, uh, to my shock, they said, you're doing a good job. 
Like, it didn't hurt. My, my gums didn't bleed as much as they normally do. Like, I had never heard, like, you got to do better. And I was like, I've unlocked it. Like, if you actually want to go to the dentist pain-free, all you have to do is floss. I didn't start brushing more. I didn't do anything like that, right? And so all I do is, I, after dinner, I floss my teeth. Even if I, like, eat a snack later, I don't floss again. I just do it once a day, make sure it's done. And so uh, I've, I've unlocked the secret. This is how to have good teeth is to floss. And so I am start feeling myself, feeling pretty good. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I'm going to the dentist again. I'm like, I know how this is going to work. They're going to say, great job. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. My gums are going to be fine. It's going to be great, right? So I go to the dentist. Floss my teeth, great. Everything's going great. Hygienist doesn't say much. And then she brings the doctor, the dentist guy in, and he looks at my teeth. And then guess what he said? Your teeth look great. What do you mean cavity? Get out of here with that. <laughs> of course. He said they looked amazing, right? So all you got to do is floss once a day, and that is the secret to surviving the dentist. And when it comes to following Jesus or honoring God with our lives, the answer to this is how we do this is actually by loving other people. Now, I want to say this. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, or maybe some translations say, love others as yourself, we also, we like this answer because if we're honest, this answer is somewhat ambiguous, right? Like others can probably be anyone who we want it to be. Our neighbor can be anyone we, like, we want it to be. Like who is Jesus actually referring to, because he doesn't tell us specifically who it is. It can make us feel good because there are people in our life that we love. But what about the people that we don't want to love? And so the question for us, again, is who is the neighbor that Jesus is talking about here? You see, because in ancient Judaism, uh, your neighbor, in ancient rabbinical texts, your neighbor was actually only other fellow Israelites and fellow Jews. They were your people. And everyone else, if we were to put in modern terms, it's kind of like this. You could think your neighbor was those who look like you, think like you, vote like you, and like what you like. Right? And so when Jesus says neighbor, is he only referring to other fellow Israelites, or is he referring to something else? Well, he doesn't say it here, but of many of us, you're probably familiar, even if you've never read the story, you've undoubtedly heard the phrase, the parable of the good Samaritan. Right, when somebody does something good, we say that they are a good Samaritan. Now, you can read this story in Luke chapter 10. I, I won't read it this morning for time's sake. But this is where Jesus defines for us who your neighbor actually is. And what's ironic about the, the story of the good Samaritan, because it is so familiar to many of us, which is a totally fine thing, we actually don't understand how, I, how absurd and weird and radical it sounded to say good Samaritan as a Jewish person. You see, because the Samaritans were a group of people and the Jews hated each other, right? Originally, there were 12 tribes of Israel that went into the promised land. The Samaritans were part of those people. Eventually, over time, however, they kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of broke off and kind of started to do their own thing. So the Samaritans, for example, only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't follow all of the Hebrew scriptures. And so there was a theological disconnect. Um, they were ethnically somewhat similar, but also a little bit different because the Samaritans started to intermarry with some of the people groups around them. And so they were uh, different ethnically uh, than the other Jewish people. And so they didn't associate. If you were to put modern language on it, they hated each other with a severe form of racism, a severe form of bias and bigotry. They never talked to one another. And we know what this is like, right? Like it's really easy for us to categorize people who we don't spend any time with. And so they hate each other. They didn't like each other. And so to hear a good Samaritan as a Jewish person would to be, depending on your political persuasion, like somebody saying the story of the good liberal or the good conservative or the good rich billionaire, 
right? Or the good communist, or the good Marxist, or the good critical race theorist, right? Whatever you kind of triggers in your mind, oh, those people can't be good because they also believe in this. This is how a Jew would think of a, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. And of course, what happens in the story, well, this guy gets beat up, gets beat up severely, thrown in a ditch on the side of the road to die. And then you have two people walk by. You have a priest who walks by in modern turn, essentially think of someone who's like an associate pastor or someone who works on staff at a church, right? If you work on staff at a church, clearly you're supposed to love God, right? And so imagine uh, someone on staff, an associate pastor uh, walks on the side of the road, sees someone dying and bleeding, and instead of helping them, they actually go to the other side of the road to avoid them and keep going. And then it says there's a Levite, which again, and maybe in modern terms, think like a lead senior pastor. Well, if maybe the church staff didn't do a good job, obviously the lead pastor has to care. And so he's certainly going to help somebody. And so the Levite comes and he sees the same guy. And what does he do? He goes to the other side of the road and leaves him. And then a little bit later on, a Samaritan, right? The one that you hate, the one that you think is less than, the one that you are, like all of these, there's nothing good about a Samaritan. What does a Samaritan do? Well, he does what the Jews, other good Jewish people doesn't do, don't do. Picks him up, throws him on his horse, bandages his rooms. He takes him to an inn to rest and recover. He pays his fee, and then he tells the innkeeper, I'm going to come back later, and I'm going to, uh, whatever else he needs to help him get better, I will cover it for him. I will pay all of his expenses. And so what Jesus tells us in the Good Samaritan, and what he's trying to tell this scribe here is this, that we love God, by loving anyone he places in our path. You and I love God, not just by praying once a day or knowing someone who works in ministry or coming to church or reading our Bible or not being mean to people who aren't mean to us. We love God by loving anyone, good, bad, or otherwise, that God places in our path. Now, here's the thing. I know sometimes words are confusing in English, and so I looked up in the dictionary, in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, uh, what, how do you define anyone, right, just so we're clear? And they define it this way, any person at all, right? This is how, I just, this, is, this is what I get paid to do, like the real hard stuff, okay? Um, any person at all. And so for Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is that love fulfills the law, the entire point of all the law. That love for God releases the love of God. That if we really want to honor and follow the Lord, we do that, we demonstrate that by loving and honoring the people that he has placed in our life. Or in other words, you cannot love God in isolation from other relationships in your life. You can't do it. Now, we can read the scripture and talking about loving and forgiving and be gracious and all these sorts of things. But unless we have relationships in our life where we actually have to live it out, it sounds really easy to do, but it does not mean we are actually doing it. Or put it this way, in Romans chapter 13, it'll be on the screen, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome that was being persecuted, and uh, he says, he talks about the importance of love. Now, before I read this passage, I just want to say something really quick. Romans 13 is the scripture that everybody comment, that everybody, the beginning of Romans 13 is the scripture that everybody references, whether they're a Christian or not, when the person that they have voted for is the president or in the political power. Right, Romans 13, the beginning of it, is about honoring your governmental authorities, right? And so when the people that we vote for are in office, we like that verse. And the people that we don't vote for, the people we vote for don't make it in office, we talk about, you know, convictionally standing up against sin and evil, right? So it's just a funny thing here, right? But Paul is talking about, again, they had it, and a, first, a Christian in first century Rome has it way worse than any of us. 
right? He's talking about honoring and loving those above you. But then he says this in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. He's mentioning some of the Ten Commandments there. And any other commandments are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, we live out God's will for our life by loving, loving and honoring him and other people. Now, here's what I want to do. I I hope this will encourage you this morning. Um, It is not wrong to wonder, to pray, and to ask God to give you direction in terms of what job I should take, uh, who should I marry, where should I live, should I do this thing or should I do that thing. That, That is great, and we should seek wisdom from the community. We should ask God. But I want to maybe encourage you this morning to remind you that you should not feel any pressure that when you're asking God for wisdom for these decisions, that if you get it wrong, if you choose the, what you think is the wrong decision, that you have somehow messed up God's will for your life. God cares about those things. Uh, God wants good for you. But I think many times we think we have a, we're at a crossroads. We've got to make a decision. And if we make the wrong one, well, that's it. We've blown it. And the rest of our life is going to be thrown off track. But yet Jesus says that's not true. As long as we are loving God and loving others, anything that we do can honor God's will for our life, right? Can I love God and love other people in this job, in this city, at this college, uh, in this neighborhood? That is the question that we should ask. And if so, the encouragement for you this morning is that you cannot get God's will wrong, that you can't get it wrong. That he's not up there like, oh, you you chose the wrong door. It was door B and you chose door A. That's not how it works. But you can love God and love people, and you can do that anywhere, and that is what he's asking us to do. And so then he continues by saying this in verse 32. It says this after Jesus responds by loving God and loving your neighbor. It says, Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, this particular religious leader agrees with Jesus and his understanding of the scriptures, right? That he also elevates the importance of loving God and loving others um, above sacrifices and offerings, which is a big deal because it's why the temple actually existed where they're actually having this conversation, Right? In other words, this scribe affirms that the most sacred duties for followers of the Lord do not take precedence over love and are meaningless without him. So if we're offering these sacrifices or if we're going to church or we're giving money or we're doing all these things, we're not actually loving the Lord, then it doesn't actually matter if we get that part wrong. So he says, well done, Jesus, I agree with your assessment. But then, and on all ironies here, Jesus says something really awesome, I think. He says this in verse 34. <clears throat> it says, when Jesus saw that he, so that the scribe answered correctly, or sorry, answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and no one dare question him any longer. This is the final question, probably of a long day, of a lot of questions that aren't even recorded in Mark. And then it says, no one dared question him any longer. Here's what's ironic about what's happening here. That this scribe has come to pass judgment on Jesus, watching him from afar, seeing how he's answering, and wants to see what Jesus says is the most important law. 
And apparently, according to the scribe, that Jesus passed. He says, well done, Jesus. You got it right. But then Jesus, who actually has authority, declares that the scribe is the one that is not far from the kingdom of God. That the scribe is close in the sense that he understands that what God wants for him above anything else is to love him and to love others. But to fully experience the kingdom, he actually must also draw near and follow Jesus because when we follow Jesus, we're actually following God because Jesus is God who has come. So he's got the right answer intellectually, but if he truly wants to experience the kingdom, he needs to come and to follow him. This is why John, uh, the, one, the last passage of scripture we'll read here this morning, in John chapter 4, again, he's also talking about the teachings of Jesus and how love is the most important thing. He says this in John chapter 4, verse 7, it'll be on the screen. He says this, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, right? He proactively did, did it for us before we did anything for him and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another, right? And this is the picture of the gospel. That God didn't just say, go and do it, but that God demonstrated himself first. That he came and gave grace and mercy and forgiveness to us before we ever did anything to deserve it, before we ever asked for it. That he proactively treated us how we would want others to treat us. He didn't wait to see how we would respond. He didn't wait to say, well, this person did enough good stuff. He, he came proactively to love us the way that we would want him to love us. And this is why you can put it another way, that love is not something that God does. Love is something he, that he is. Love is who God is. That he's asking us and he's inviting us into this journey because this is exactly who he is. Or maybe put another way, here's how you could say it, that how we love determines what we love. How we love determines what we love. See, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to answer what Jesus, Jesus, what Jesus said, right? Love God, love people. That's great. But how we actually do these things demonstrates whether or not we actually love it. And I think the problem for many of us here this morning is not what God is asking us to do, right? Probably nothing I've said yet is probably too different if you've been around church for any length of time, right? We're supposed to love God and love people. I get it. The question, though, is how, right? How can we actually do it. And so I just want to give you a couple of proactive, practical things really quick, right? How do we, again, not wait for people to treat us how we want to be treated, but proactively do it for others? Like, so for example, when it comes to your finances, one of the easiest, maybe the best things you could do is that have a line item in your budget that just says giving to others, whatever that amount is going to be. And so that every single month when something comes up, you're not wondering, hey, I'd love to give to this. I'd love to help them. I'd love to support them, but I just don't have it this month. Instead, being proactive and say, I don't know, whatever's going to show up, I've got a budget, a line item in my budget that says I've got this amount of money. If something comes up, I'm going to be able to do it. That's a proactive way to love people with your finances. Or maybe simply remembering that people are not your enemy and that every single person is deeply loved by God. One of the things that I've been asking God to do for me every single day that maybe I might commend to you is to simply pray this prayer, God, help me see people how you see people. 
no matter what they look like, no matter how they vote, no matter what they said, no matter what they've done. Help me see them how you see them, just remembering that people are not your enemy. Or maybe writing down a, prayer, a simple prayer request, maybe once a week, texting a friend and saying, hey, what, how can I pray for you? Actually writing it down, pray for them 10 seconds a day, and then two weeks later, put it on your calendar, follow up with what's going on. Right? Or again, maybe practically, one of the things that my wife does is when you, know, you see people on the side of the streets who need money, some of them might, perhaps might be homeless, it's really easy for us right, to be like, well, I don't have any cash. And you might want to help them, but you just don't, not in the position. And so what she has done is she creates these homeless bags and puts them in her car. And so when she sees somebody, she simply rolls down the window and hands it to them. Right? That's a proactive way to love someone, to prepare in case you are in a situation. Because, again, the question for us this morning was this, how can I live out God's will in my life? Again, the what is to love God and love others. We get that. That makes sense. The question is how. And so here's what I would submit to you this morning, because, again, there's life, there's, it's, there, there's very, very often there are not black and white answers to the places that we find ourselves, to the decisions that lay before us. And so the question for us is, what can we do to ensure that we are doing what God has asked us to do. Here's a great question that I would commend to you, and I'll close with this, that you can ask yourself when it looks like, how can you proactively love people? That's this. To the best of my knowledge and ability, what would Jesus do if he were me? To the best of my knowledge and ability, whatever you might be facing, whatever decision you might be facing today, this week, this month, what do I think Jesus would do if he were me? Now, you might be thinking, I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't know a ton about Jesus. What if I don't actually pick what he would have picked? And guess what? That's going to happen, right? That's, that's going to happen. So what happens then, right? Because then I've got it wrong, so this doesn't actually help. Uh, what I would actually say, that you've, but, but by doing this, you've actually done what he's asked. He's asked us to love him and love others. And you love God by considering him and the decisions the things that you do. That even if you, if you get it wrong, to the best of your ability, you've done what he, you thought he has asked you to do, which means you've done exactly what he's asked you to do, even if you don't do the thing that he might have chosen. By, by considering him and leaning on him, you have said to the best of my knowledge, God, I've loved you and I've honored you, even if I get it wrong. And so again, to make it practical, here's what I would say. Two things, a personal challenge and a public challenge, okay? Here's the personal challenge. Consider to yourself, out of love, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to invite to church? All right, who, who needs to hear about this? Or maybe I've been coming for a while and you need to get off the sidelines and actually commit to a local body. It doesn't have to be New City Church. But again, it's really easy to say you're going to live out all these one, another, one another's in Scripture. But unless you have a community where you actually have to do it, it's all talk and it's not action. So maybe you've been coming for a while and it's time to jump in and join in on what God is doing here. Or who do I need to apologize to? Or does how I spend my budget and money reflect any trust in God whatsoever? What would it look like out of love to do what God is asking us to do? Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to experience the love and grace of Jesus for the first time. Maybe just like this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Before God is asking you to go and do anything, he is asking you to allow him to love you the same way that he's going to ask you to love other people, that you can repent and believe and trust in the, in the saving work of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, allowing him to direct your life, right? Out of love, what is God might be asking me to do this today? 
Or maybe here, here's the public challenge, right? And by public, I mean, you don't have to say this to anyone else, but to, to, to actually live this out. Here is what I would encourage all of us to do this week. Really simple. Pray this prayer every morning and mean it. Simply do this. Say this. God, would you give me someone to love today? Would you give me someone to love today? And then maybe add on and the courage to actually do it. Right? To the best of my knowledge and ability, what would Jesus do if he were me? If he'd ask God every day this morning, before you leave for work, before you go, wherever you're doing, whatever, however you start your day, simply say, God, would you give me someone to love today and the courage to actually do it? Well, then to the best of your knowledge and ability, you're actually doing what Jesus asked you to do, what Jesus would do if he were you. You might get it wrong. You might not have all the answers. God never says, memorize the Bible, show up every single week at church and give all your money and do all. He doesn't say any of these things. Love God, love people. To the best of my knowledge and ability, what would Jesus do if he were me?